Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. We are now at episode number 98, uh, bearing down on 100 episodes. Who would have thought? Um, but anyway, I'm Dr. Chris Hoff. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. We have another wonderful podcast for you today. Uh, we're going to be meeting with Dr. Ken Gergen, talking about his latest book, The Relational Imperative resources for a world on edge yes we are going to get relational today but before we do that real quick couple quick announcements uh i have a new video up on youtube if you have not seen the radical therapist youtube channel please check it out i'm getting messages of, i understand a lot of folks are using it as teaching tools which really it just makes me really happy and i'm going to keep doing them and um uh, as long as people keep getting value out of them. So that's great. So, But I have a new video up on the Radical Therapist YouTube channel titled How Not to Be a Racist Therapist. And I think if you have not seen that yet, it's worthwhile. So go check that out. And uh, always, if you could rate and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're on right now, that would be great because that's how we get out in front of people. And it's much appreciated. So, and of course, come find me on all the social medias because I have a big announcement coming. I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming soon. I have a big announcement, and if you and you want to be in the know on that, so, uh, so so come find me on social media because that's where it will happen. I'm on Instagram at the Radical Therapist, Facebook. There's a Radical Therapist Facebook page. Uh, I'm even on Twitter. I, I don't. I, you know, I don't do Twitter, but really. <laughs> Uh, and I'm going to do a video on, uh, we've got a video coming on uh, this social media, the therapy slash social media phenomenon, and it's going to include capitalism and time poverty and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, so go subscribe to the Radical Therapist YouTube channel and you'll be able to get a hold of that. So anyway, um, that's enough of that. So let's get right to our guest. Uh, really excited. I, I was really excited to ha have him on here. Uh, Ken Gergen's book, Relational Being uh, Beyond Self and Community, is like a, one of my favorite books. If you have not read that book, I highly recommend it. It's just a wide-ranging uh, examination of all things social construction, relational stuff. So it's just really good. And um, yeah, so anyway, so we're going to talk to Ken Gergen. And Ken Gergen is a senior research professor in psychology at Swarthmore Swarthmore College and president of the Taos Institute. He is internationally known for his contributions to social constructionist theory, technology and cultural change, and relational theory and practice. His major writings include Realities and Relationships, Soundings and Social Construction, and Relational Being, Beyond Self and Community. His most recent book, prior to this one, is Relational Evaluation Beyond the Tyranny of Testing with Shirto Gill. And Gergen is listed among the 50 most influential living psychologists in the world. That's a big deal. And has received numerous awards for his work, including honorary degrees in both U.S. and Europe. So without further ado, let's meet Ken Gergen. Hi, Ken. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to have you here. Um, wonderful opportunity. You've been a big influence on my work. Uh, Relational Being is one of my favorite books. So, And oh. um, I'm very excited about your new book. It's a very timely book. Uh, just for everybody listening, the book is The Relational Imperative, Resources for a World on Edge. 
And I I'm really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you about this new work. And I guess I want to start in your new book. You start by sharing uh, some of your concerns in writing a book like this. These concerns include the acknowledgement that antagonism is everywhere, the loss of a moral compass. We, uh, we no longer trust our inter- institutions. There's a rapid pace of change and how education seems increasingly irrelevant. And I guess my question is, what is your hope in the face of these challenges? And why did you take on the task of writing this book? Oh, Oh, let me take the final question first. Um, Actually, the the book was a project that I had begun uh, several years ago and, and didn't want to do it because it was supposed to be a kind of a reduction of relational being into a into an easily understood, transparent, easily mobile vehicle for carrying some major ideas around the world. <clears throat> and that's hard to do, and it's not very rewarding to engage in that. But um, after Mary, my wife's death, and she, I, I had to take it on because she had been prodding me to do it for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And um, I finally said, well, as a sort of commemoration to her, I'll do it. Now, that was the beginning, but then so much had changed in terms of the world's the, the context of, of what's going on in the world today that I couldn't simply redo those ideas in any simple form. It's as if I had to find some way to make bring that bring the ideas of relational being together with these challenges that you mentioned, which, I mean, I, I look at us right now in a kind of a crisis mode sure. and how to speak to those those issues through the eyes of the relational ideas that uh, I was writing about. Yeah. Um, well, and in your book, uh, uh, you, you go more in depth about how our world is constructed on the idea that individual persons, organizations, governments, et cetera, are made up of independent or bounded units. And for our listeners, I wonder if you could say more about this, because that's what you kind of take on in relational being as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me use that to kind of connect the ideas and relational being to these issues at stake. Hmm. The central question I ask is, if we've had several thousands of years attempting to relate both one another in this world and we haven't solved it yet and we're still killing each other and in fact right now if we do not find ways of relating i don't see how we can go on Hmm. we can't solve the problems of how we're going to work together globally on on environment on disease on war and so on um you know we haven't got that much time so the question is what what have we missed and the argument here is that one of the major things we've missed in terms of, of, of getting it together is the very way we've understood relations of who are the we, how it is we're going to relate to each other. And the chief issue there that I'm drawing attention to is that we've understood this primarily in terms of independent units, as you point out. That is, we've got independent individuals you there on your screen, me here on my screen, and we're, you know, we have our own lives and so on. And we ask about our thoughts and our well-being and where we're going, what we're doing. <clears throat> and the same with, uh, let's say, governments uh, in the world or organizations. We have 
nations which are also independent. We have organizations that's in corporations that are independent, communities of states, political parties, and so on. So the attention tends to be on the attention go, tends to go to the relate to the individual units, and relations become secondary hmm. because units tend to look out for themselves, take care of themselves, tend themselves, be concerned with themselves and their well-being. And the well-being or the concern with the process of relating is secondary. Now, what the book does is to turn that around, put that process in the center place. What is that process? Because we emerge out of the process. Language is a good instance. Mm. You can't do language. In fact, you have no words outside of a process where we together made up the language. None of us, none of us I individually owns that language. We can only communicate as a result of something we do together. So it's a call attention to the and, and, and the both the little book and the large, to how it is that process proceeds and how we become persons out of the process. So it takes not persons first saying process before persons, mm. process before individuals, process before nations, and so on. Mm. Yeah, you you have me thinking of the Buddhist idea of we're all interconnected in a way. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. So, it's a nice add to that. Yeah, it's, okay. Uh, uh, and that's kind of how I you know, looked at it or started to get my head around it when I first got into these kinds of ideas. And um, well, Chris, I, yeah. I want to say, look, there, there, there are a lot of movements in that direction. I mean, Buddhism is one of them. The question is how you fill up that space. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, with Buddha's co-arising, it's a wonderful metaphor. Right. But how do you fill up that space in terms of how we act together? <clears throat> I mean, we all agree the relations are important, but what is that process and how, how do we understand that process? So, yeah. Great. And I'm going to probably ask you that question here in a bit, but um, something that's interesting to me and something I've been thinking a lot about, and you actually uh, write about in the new book, You, in, in the book, you are critical of the idea of community as solution, uh, that communal-centered life has significant shortcomings. And I guess I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about that and what is possible beyond community? Yeah. Uh, all right. Let, let me uh, let's go back to the process that we're right now engaging in uh, a conversation of a certain kind, <clears throat> and we're co-creating that conversation. Um, when you nod your head <laughs> and so on as I'm talking, that is you, you're participating, yeah. and how you respond to me will make me who I am. I, all right. So let's look at that process as fundamental, mm. and wherever we are, we're always engaged in that process. Now that process also is the the genesis of what we the ways we construct the world. That is, it go back to language. Mm-hmm. So we co-created that language and we use that to make things up. So we have made up the idea of single individuals possessed with minds in the same way we've made up the idea of a community mm-hmm. or a nation. So those are words that we use and the. It, and it's the, then the question comes, how are you going to use those words? And if you use them, 
to now establish another founded unit. Hmm. My people, my tribe, my community, as opposed to yours, my religion, as opposed to yours, and so on. Then we get into this same issue of, well, what, what is the good of my religion or my ethnicity or my group? And, I, and you re, redo the problem of this assumption of bounded entities. So I'm not opposed to what you might call communal process. That is a process which would, let's say, harmoniously bring us together across a larger number of people. Not at all. It's this hesitancy to put the name community on it. Communing, I love that one. Hmm. Communing, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, I've been I've been playing with the word coalitions as well too. So um, yeah. you write that when, and I think this is important for we do obviously have a lot of therapist listeners, and uh, in the book you write that when people understand each other, they are not reading minds, but participating in congenial patterns of relating. And I think that's important for our therapist audience. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that idea. Well, a lot hangs on that. And I think we could have a whole nother discussion. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, it's a, it's a, because it's a pretty strong idea. That is, <clears throat> I'm assuming that our entire vocabulary of mental process <clears throat> is a vocabulary we've made up. In the process of relating, we've generated languages and we've generated a language in the West, in any case, this hugely rich language of mental process. And therapy has grown out of that tradition. And the way we have understood language is somehow it is an expression of the process. But we made up, the, uh, I'm sorry, an expression of mind. Hmm. But if we've made up the very idea of mind, then what is what are we expressing? That is what I'm trying to get away from essentializing mind, emotions, feelings, thought. That, that's something we put into the individual. We've made that up in the Western tradition in terms of what people are doing when they're crying or talking and so on. So, right. so mental talk we have, and we do things with it. So that if I tell you I'm sad, we have traditions of how, how you respond to that. And if you tell me, uh, well, uh, get used to it. <laughs> um, well, that's a way of treating me, and I'd say, well, you, somehow you don't understand. Hmm. I, I, and understanding, in this case, I want you to have some other thing you say, like, oh, I'm certainly sorry, tell me. And then I say, well, look, my, um, my aunt died, and I'm really, really sad about that, because she was very, very helpful to me. And you say, oh, that must, that must have been really bad for you. Tell me about your relation with your aunt, or something like that. Now, what you're doing is engaging in a really, for us in the West, a process of relating, which we would call understanding. And, and you don't know what I, in quote, really feel. You don't, I don't even know 
that I'm, I don't know what to call this I'm doing. I put the label sadness on it, but uh, what is, what am I talking about? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's depression. <laughs> Maybe it's befuddlement. I don't, I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. But when my aunt dies and I have been close to her, I go into a way of being that will, I will call sadness. And if you are going to be understanding, you've got to groove with that process of relating. Hmm. Or like if we were dancing and you step on my toe every time <laughs> we dance, we're not coordinated. Hmm. But you don't ask me, what do you mean by that? Or what, what are your feelings? It's a, you learn how to dance. Hmm. Well, understanding is more like the coordination of dancers than it is you're plumbing the depths of my, of whatever it is that might be happening internally. Hmm. It's, it's another way of looking at mental talk as a way of relating, as opposed to, um, let's say, a report All on right. some world inside. And there are kind of ideological, political issues at stake here. Um, and you know them very well from your radical therapist background. Mm. <clears throat> and if you place a person's ills inside the mind, it decontextualizes it in terms of the conditions under which that person is living. Right, right. So if you end up with um, a huge number of, well, uh, here's a good case from local because I've been very involved with the educational process ADHD hmm. attention deficit and you find attention deficit spiking it's not an epidemic of mental illness and, it, and the poor kid is not even feeling anguished the anguish comes from parents who the kid is making good grades and teachers who the kid may not be paying attention and a school system where the emphasis is so increasingly on making good marks that the kid is under huge pressure. And we give the kid the pills. The kid gets the riddle and the kid gets the extra stuff. So we've taken this massive system and boiled it down to a psychological problem of a kid where the poor kid is a, like a scapegoat for a, for a a horrible system of education which we've created. Anyway, you see right. see the ideological point. So I'm not not big on essentializing the mind. I I look at I want more interested in what mental talk does with, as we are relating. Yeah, and in the book you do kind of take you examine well education is one of them, but also you examine health care and. Uh, do talk about therapy. So I guess I'm wondering, what do you, what is your hopes for therapy, or how, what's the, in your in your mind, what is the state of therapy these days? Or, um, well, I, you know, it, it you've asked a good question, and the slight takes me off in a slightly different direction. <clears throat> I was very much part of and engaged with what I looked at the, the whole movement to de-essentialize that's back beginning with the critical psychiatry up through the question of the DSM 
and so on, and the emergence of a constructionist way of looking at things, which, of course, becomes very pivotal in narrative therapy. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Look at, the, look at our ways of constructing the world. Look at the narratives we're living in. <clears throat> so that was, that's been very engaging, and I, that's still very much uh, alive. But I've been trying to rewrite a section of another book on therapy recently mm. and trying to catch the drift of what's happening today. And it seems to me, like the rest of the world, it, the therapy is becoming a very fragmented community where different people with different ideas and different kinds of things and we're not necessarily talking with each other. So there's mm. no, I can't find a central tendency. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I look at, programs of, you know from the conferences and they're going off in all sorts of directions hmm. um, which may be may be fine you know it, the more voices and the possibilities the better in one sense um, hmm. I think it's dangerous to 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 take therapy and make it a, a, a sort of a disciplinary regime in Foucault's words right right uh-huh. So everybody has to fit that model. Everybody has to, I mean, follow the rules of cognitive behavioral. This is what you ask in the first session and so on. Right. I think that's, that's insane. But so I... I Do you see, some, I see something it. concerning in this fragmentation? Or? I, it does. Uh, it concerns me more, more generally hmm. because we might concern in part with the book is when you look at what's happening in society and partly because we can now relate to anyone anytime anywhere and my original hope was that that would bring us into relating with each other in ways that we're understanding so we'd have kind of a better feel for each other in the world but it it's so easy to isolate hmm. and become a we and draw another ring around this unit, we who believe this therapy and not you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so then it becomes dangerous in the sense that what you have is sort of an all-against-all fragmentation um, and and the dissolution of society, basically, ultimately. Yeah, yeah good point. Um... And a little bit that's, that's what I fear is happening, and... So I begin to look at ways out of that and look at, for me, if, to look at therapy almost as a, a change agent in society. It's, the, whole, the way you do it is part of what society will become. So it's a, it, in the very process of relating, and you set a model for how it is we relate together. Now, that's the way I would like to look at it so that you're not only dealing with a local process of whoever's in therapy hmm. and what their relations are, what they're with, with all, but the very way of doing it is like a model for a way of being. I, I, liked, I really like that, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's the opposite, for example, of um, the kind of... Um, uh, the structure that we set up from Freud on of the of the of the therapist being the the, the kind of leader knower, and it's it's and the 
client of sort of dependent. Yeah, right. And that very structure of there are, well, there are experts and there are people who don't know anything. You've already set up a division. Yeah. So therapy becomes then we try to break that division, becomes a with. Let us work with, let us co-create together. Yeah. And I think that's the way narrative therapy is actually moving in myself, the way I read it now. I don't think it began so much that way. It was an attempt, but it's the difference between the therapist who was guiding the way and working as opposed to working with just slightly different feel to it. The way I'm at least what I'm reading. Yeah. So there is some hope. Let's hope. Um, Okay. Also in your book, this was really kind of very interesting to me because I'm really interested in future scenarios right now and examining, exploring those. And in your book, you also write about scenarios and generative scenarios, degenerative scenarios, regenerative scenarios. And like I said, I become very interested in in future scenarios as a speculative infrastructure for co-creating potentials and predicting possible experiences, et cetera. And I'm wondering if you could say more about your views of these sorts of scenarios or even describe them for our audience and, and their role in the relational process. Okay, um, and then let me come back to your own interest there. I'm sure. Um, yeah. Moment. yeah. What, because it's slightly different and it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, the attempt there was to, to make a rough, and this is really, really rough set of categories about the kinds of processes in which we're related that, that have a generative capacity, in which we, they go somewhere, there's something opens up, so there's some kind of joy or... or um, uh, new ideas or learning or well some sense of well-being blossoms as a just and it's a broad broad category and I don't want to fill it in too carefully but you you kind of know mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as opposed to uh, the kind of normal everyday lives that we lead where we say hello to each other how you doing and we do business together and it's kind of repetitive and it it's the glue which holds us together in daily life, as opposed to the degenerative, and this is where it becomes most interesting, where things start going downhill. <clears throat> and this, you know, major issues, in, in not only in therapy, but in communities, international relations, and so on. What kinds of relations spin out to the point that we're not speaking, or you're evil, or you're we should be careful about you or we should lock you up or we should eliminate you in the end. It's that degeneration into non-meaning. So, and what are they like? What are the components? How, how do they function? Where are, where are they located? And then the regenerative, which I become extremely interested. How do we get out of it? Mm Once we're in a, like to go to the therapeutic situation, once we're in a horrible arguments that people can get into, doors slamming and and people get hurt, how do we reverse the trend? What point can you insinuate yourself into that process and say, hey, we can do better. Hey, let's go back to X. So rather than trying to solve the problem so much, how 
that you may be arguing about how do we reverse that trend to regenerate a process whereby we are at least mutual well-being is being um, achieved. And I'm very interested in that not only in therapeutic relations, but all the way up to uh, international relations or mm. peacemaking and communities and so on. <clears throat> all right, so that it's, it's a way of trying to introduce a, a way of thinking about the process and the analytics of what are the <clears throat> you know, peacemaking. How do people do that? What are those conversations like? Um, how could those how could those practices be shared to, for others? How could the practices of peacemaking we find in other cultures be important? How could we share those with each other? How could we create new practices within therapeutic? Where how can therapists become co-creators of new vehicles for relating? Now the question you raised, and that I find it quite fascinating, is all right, what I'm talking about so far are things we do and how we could do them better. <clears throat> One way of doing them better might be to generate scenarios for the future. Mm -hmm. How could we make this happen? Mm -hmm. uh, what would the steps be with that? It's kind of like not re-narrating the past, it's taking... It's, taking a narrow of the past and extending into the future and ask, what could we get from that? And let me share one yeah. um, case of that. It's worked wonderfully in education. Please. It's a school I work with in Norway for dropouts. You know, kids, who, well, for one reason or other, can't tolerate the school system or been kicked out and whatever. They're a tough group of kids. And this school system's absolutely been fantastic. It's got the national attention. They're kind of duplicated all over the country now. But one of the key things they do, and this is the part that's interesting, is sit down with the kid and say, what would you like to, what do, where do you see yourself like 10 years from now? Where would, what would you like to do? Hmm. What appeals to you? And they start telling, if you ask them about the story about, well, you know what? I'd really like to work on cars. I'd like to have a shop where I, I really like cars and I'd like to know and fix them. And, and uh, hey, what if I could work on a sports car? Wouldn't that be fun? All right. And so you begin to develop that ceremony and you fill, fill it out. Where would you like to live? What would be a great thing? Then you ask, how would you get there? Yeah, what would be right. the steps? And they start filling it. And who would you need to help you? Who would be some really good Perfect. people to help them? Mm -hmm. What kind of courses might be really useful for that? Um, hey, we could do that, and we can get those people to help you. We can make that happen. And they make up a whole road plan, road map mm -hmm. for the future, and they they actually make a chart, physically make it and draw things on it, set them up in the school. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and they've had wonderful success with that, just as Change the mindset. Now let's fix you. Let's develop a future narrative that you can accomplish, that right. you have your heart in. Right. Yeah, and I, that's the part of, like, I, that's the structure I think I'm really interested in. And, and in my own thinking, it's come out of, um, and I was introduced, I'm pretty sure you introduced me to the work of Bruno Latour. And 
Um, yeah. yeah. And his, you know, uh, critique of critique and, and, uh, and also his compositionist manifesto and, and those ideas of like critique has taken us so far, but now these tools are kind of just creating ruins upon ruins kind of thing. And so, but how do we go together in the future? And I think, you know, there's a lot of people in climate work that are using future scenarios and the way you just described was beautiful. I want to find out more about that. And I just think, you know, there are, you know, people that are starting to try to look forward and how do we move forward together? And I think this is one of those kind of possible infrastructures to, yeah. to give us yeah. a framework to do that. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for you know, that sharing that. Um, okay. Um, I guess I'm going to add, this is where like you did raise that question. How do we fill up that space? And maybe because you write that relational process, the relational process within the profession of therapy is largely based on the assumption of separation. You kind of spoke to that and, and largely structured in terms of cause and effect. And I wonder if you could say more about that, but also, um, what is the relational solution or how, you know, what are your ideas? And you've kind of talked about this already, but I mean, what are your ideas about how we fill up that space or what would be helpful uh, kind of moving in, trying to do that work? Uh, well, let me go to the cause effect yeah. question first and then try to move into it from there. <laughs> I mean, generally in the social sciences and policy making in everyday life, um, we think of cause and effect, that something makes something happen. <clears throat> now, why do we, why do we, why is that a good explanation? And generally you can all, you can trace that explanation back to, to this way we have a thinking of individual entities. <clears throat> because you ask if, if there are independent entities, why would, why would any of them move? <clears throat> it was that actually was Aristotle's question, out of which the very idea of the psyche, which was the process of moving you, came, and out of which ultimately becomes mental life and will and conscious and agency. I just move when I want to. In some way, that becomes the basis of, of, of determinism versus free will. Anyway, so you've got another process, two possibilities, either the object or the thing moves itself, as in the free will, or it is like a billiard bar bumped from the outside. Something moves it by force, cause and effect. So it won't move unless there are independent variables in the language of which caused that to move. And that's been a, a kind of a dominant force, certainly in the therapeutic world in terms of the, of the medical model, because it's a causal model. Hmm. X causes Y, doctors cure patients. It's very much part of the governmental model. Governments decide what happens and put laws in effect, enforce the laws, cause change to happen. Now, in terms of a way of relating, the scenario that you end up with is, is not a good one. That is, you cause me, you force me. I don't have a word in that. I'm not part of it. It is, you make me do what I'm doing. Child rearing, I cause you to be. So I direct you, I threaten you. 
I force you as a parent to do what you're supposed to do. What is that? That scenario to me is degenerative. It will be. Hmm. That scenario is built into our school systems where I cause as a teacher, my students learn and I check to make sure they do. And again, with national policies, police, so on. So it's a, it, it's a creative, it, it's a scenario, it, I'm sorry, it's a structure hmm. of relating which creates this generally a degenerative scenario of resistance, anger, intimidation, and so on. Now, I, it's easier to critique that kind of structure in terms of, let's say, child-rearing education government than it is with therapy, because I think, at least within the therapeutic world that I know of, and I must say I'm biased because I hang out with people who kind of like... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. We understand each other. You, you hang out with the rebels. <laughs> <laughs> um, then it's moved very much in a not <clears throat> um, strategic, as in the old, mm-hmm. but into a, a co, a co-creation, collaborative, a with my sort of alternative to cause and effect is what I call confluence, the flowing with, more of a, like a, a river with tributaries moving into it. And that's, again, metaphoric, but it sets the tone for therapy. How could we, how could I help? Who else could help? How could we support that? It's a little bit um, there, I think, and, well, you might say very much there in terms of uh, the cycle of, of open dialogue process, mm-hmm. bring bring community members in, um, and who help with the process of therapy. But that would be one one direction. <clears throat> who would? It's there in multiple family therapy, mm-hmm. <clears throat> where families help each other. A kid with an eating disorder. How would we help? We work together. We share stories and so on. Mm. So it's trying to move therapy in a more increasingly more collaborative with direction. So indeed, out of the office is insofar as possible, and into the community more generally. <clears throat> Again, to go back to the socio-political implications of therapy. Okay, and. Also in the book, you write about the relational processes and organizations, and you point to practices like design thinking and appreciative inquiry, both of which I'm interested in. I'm wondering if you could say more about that and your thinking around organizations. Well, what really interests me about these, and they are emerging in a lot of different locations, they don't take dialogue for granted. They don't take conversation for granted in terms of what it will produce. Mm. Um, you bring a town meeting together in the United States now, and it becomes hell. Mm. <laughs> People shouting at each other. Yeah, you, you know, we'll all come together and discuss this, but it breaks down so easily. Right. It degenerates. So let's not take conversation as just a given that if we have good intentions, we'll all get through it. Let's design the conversation. Let's put limits on what can be said, how it's said, 
an experiment almost with like creating ways of relating mm-hmm. looking at again therapists and others in organizations as as creators of the forms of practice that out of which we emerge together as doing well and we put question mark in that too but so AI or appreciative inquiry was one of the first of those that I knew of um, and which was a way of bringing an organization together to create the future. And rather than sort of starting with the problems we got, let's start talking about what we value. Hmm. And you move on from there in various stages. Um, it's an eye-opener because it's really changed the whole field of organizational development mm-hmm. and the ways in which it can be used in other forms of peace building or even bringing schools together. <clears throat> Uh, the same with uh, de- design thinking. It's a way of saying, that, let's look, creativity is not just in the mind of geniuses. Right, right. Um, we can set up the conditions of conversation where it yields something. If we set the conditions, it's likely to go someplace. Hmm. What are those conditions? What would be the components of conversation we would need to get there? It's very similar to what I was talking about earlier in peace building. Mm-hmm. That is, it, what? how can we, if we're at odds, if we hate each other, how can we set up the conversation so that we can cross those bridges? How could you do that? Of course, narrative is one of them. Mm-hmm. Tell me the story of why you, why you got into this or why was it important to you? How did it come to be important to you? And there other variations on that, but there are ways of starting the conversation so you don't sort about you're wrong and I'm right, or you did all this and you're so it's designing the conversations. Yeah. And learning from others how they design them. And you brought up peace building, and I, I guess my last question, or second to last question here is in in the book, you kind of end in this, uh, well, in our current times, democ- I mean, you kind of touched on it, you know, democracy is under attack everywhere. There are new threats of global, global conf- conflict uh, currently with Russia. And then, you know, there's a, at least in the States, there's a growing antag- antagonism with China. And you do speak about the world on edge, and I, I guess I'm wondering, and you write about relational processes and governments and, and peace building, and I'm, you know, maybe is there anything else you might want to say about how we get through this scary time? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first realize what we've structured here in a way of, of scenarios. That is, if we structure, let's say, democracy as every person or himself, him, her, they, whatever, mm. as independent entities, mm. we're already in trouble. And if you look at political parties as entities, we're already in trouble. So we've got democracy, but it's not serving us well, and, and we need to rethink what how that can function. I'll go back to that in a minute. If you look at international relations, it's every nation for itself. It's a major competition. Mm. We're all scared of each other. It's a, it, so we have a scaffold of relating, which is competitive, and it's killing us. How could, we, how could we do otherwise? How could we do democracy otherwise? And those are the kind of major questions. 
I don't I don't have a, any simple answers. Right, sure. But at least what I feel like is it's, there are movements now in that direction. There are movements, for example, on a more local level of co-governance, hmm. relational governance, um, deliberative democracy, and um, one that I've become very interested in lately is citizens' assemblies, hmm. which are now being used in several countries um, as a way of trying to cross those bridges to where of, of, of difference and animosity. The one that's still absolutely essential and that I don't know where to go with it is internationally, how do we remove that structure of competition? That hmm. Me first attitude. Right. Killing us. And I that's that's where I'm stumped. Okay. All right. Well, Ken, thank you and for everything. And then uh, I guess I have one final question I like to ask everybody that comes on the show. And that that is, and I'm really interested in what's, what's got your attention these days. What books or ideas or thinkers, et cetera, are capturing a, your attention currently? We really just touched on it. What do we do about government? Yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah. That's a really central issue for me now. And I, I, read, take notes, connect with people, mm-hmm. uh, in a symposium and so on. And it's really, yeah, it's a very significant part of my interest at this moment. <clears throat> Wonderful. Okay. And I'm going to, uh, those things you suggested, deliberate democracy, citizens, assemblies, co-governance, I'm going to do my own research too. So for, thanks for putting that out okay. there. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, we, right. we, can, we can support each other. Let's do it. Yeah, right. Ken, thank you very much. Uh, you wrote an important book. I'm everybody. I, I'm going to have a link to the book in the show notes. The relational imperative: resources for a world on edge. Everybody should read it. It's a book for our time. Ken, thank you very much. I know you're busy for making the time and coming on the show. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Well, that's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. And you can get a copy of the book. Or there's a link in the show notes, so go check that out and and pick yourself up a copy of the book. It is, like I said, an important book for our time, uh, and I think you'll find it really helpful. And so, yeah, as always, please come find me on social media, on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, You can email me at theradicaltherapist at gmail.com. Love getting emails from you folks. And... Uh, yeah, and please rate and review the show on any uh, podcasting platform you're on, and please share it with anybody you think would find value. So uh, that's it for me. As always, thanks for listening to the show. I'm Dr. Chris Hoff. Peace.